You are listening to the Religicatheo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. In this episode, the Center's director talks to Mona Siddiqui and Serene Jones about the nature of weariness. Take a listen. great to see both of you. Thank you so much for taking the time, if I haven't said already, to just be with us today and to be in conversation about the nature of weariness. And we see so much today across society, conversations, people feeling weary, feeling a kind of even social or personal anemia, feeling even overcome. And often that that term weariness is used rather generally as a feeling of, of being somewhat overwrought. And there's plenty of reasons maybe we would all refer to a pandemic, a sense of inequality, a recognition of environmental concerns and degradation on top of, say, family systems feeling stretched by political differences and upheaval or the rise of populism. I mean, my goodness, we could all, the three of us, identify a number of reasons why people are feeling weary today. My question for the two of you is, what is weariness? Why do we need to know more about it? And how does it arrive? Can we start there? Let me ask this. As a a philosophically or theologically, how do we think about the nature of weariness? What is it? So I do think there's a difference between weariness and fatigue and even boredom, because sometimes we use these words interchangeably. And I think that if I think of boredom theologically, I think of does boredom for me as a believer lead to a sense of ingratitude? When I think of weariness, I think it's part of the human condition. You know, we are going to, we just think of it as negative, but actually so much of our lives are spent being weary. And the reason we think of it as a negative thing is that over the last 30, 40 years, we've been almost, I would say, not duped, but this is the general normative trend of thinking that a productive life leads no space for solitude, weariness, just being, that a productive life is all about action and activity and doing things. And I think that's actually led to a lot of people feeling emotionally overcome because they're weary. Hmm. They're weary, they're tired, they have little direction, they have little purpose. That's, I think, the negative side of weariness, but I think there's also a positive side. Let me ask you first, of reflecting on this question of the negative side, and, and maybe to you for a moment, Serene, in terms of what happens in terms of weariness, what makes us overwrought, to Mona's point? Too much to do, too little time, too much expense. And how do you see that? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm just so grateful to be in this conversation with you, Michael, and with you, Mona. What a way to start with that, that statement about Weariness, Mona, is quite profound. You know, as I reflect on weariness, the first image that comes to mind is how recognizing, dealing with, feeling weariness connects us to our animal selves. Over the years, as I've done work on the ways in which trauma 
affects the human psyche and the human soul and human community. I've been guided time and time again by studies of how animals deal with situations of utter exhaustion. Mm. Just use that word in the animal context. Let's say a rabbit is being chased across the farm by a fox, and there's real realistic terror there. Every part of that rabbit's being is in a survival mode, is being expended just to stay alive. But what we find in animals is that when the threat begins to pass, so the rabbit outruns the fox, and the first thing they do is they find a a safe space, a hole in the ground, and then they just collapse. And oftentimes after a chase like that, a rabbit will sleep for two days. The whole part of the rabbit's being says, says you have overextended every dimension of who you are and you need to just stop. And they do it automatically. And then when they come out of their hole, they're ready to go on and continue, not at a you know, rapid speed, but at a regular speed, the work of being a rabbit. And we are, even though we don't like to admit it, animals. And I think collectively this past year, exacerbated by all the expectations of our society that cause us to overwork and overextend, have just reached the point where we fall into our knees in the middle of the field, but can't quite make sense of the fact that we need to rest in order to actually admit and deal with the weariness that has besieged us. So to this image, you know, Mona, I'm the rabbit, right? I've been chased by the fox and I am exhausted by the events of the last few weeks of my life and I need to redefine safety in the way that Serene's mentioning. Is this what you mean by something like the human condition? That in the sense of exhaustion, we require weariness to restart ourselves like this. Yeah, and I really wanted to follow on from what Serene was saying. Yes, I do think it's a moment to think recharge, refocus. But I think there's also a difference between mental weariness and physical weariness. And not that the two are mutually exclusive. Sometimes they do go hand in hand. But we can be mentally tired and emotionally tired without being physically active. And sometimes we're mentally and emotionally tired precisely because we're not physically active. And that's not a restful inactivity. That's an inactivity born out of worry or something else that speaks of the human condition. But I think, I suppose what I'm trying to say is when I've looked at Christian theologians, I mean, Karl Barth was one who was very concerned about fatigue, the boredom that had set in amongst his fellow countrymen in post-war Germany. And in the sense that, you know, there's almost a danger to being too tired, too switched off, too weary, because there's work to be done. So at the same time that I think weariness is part of the human condition and we dismiss it very often as something that is less important than other aspects of the human condition. I think that this past year, these last, and I think also as you get older, you realize your priorities change, that finding time to rest and refocus and rebalance your life is probably something that comes late to all of us because we really do feel that it's time to rest when we're tired. And actually, we should fit in finding time to rest 
as we develop our careers, as we grow our families, as we just become, you know, fuller human beings and not dismiss weariness as something that is completely negative. I imagine so many people are at home, they're listening to this and thinking to themselves, I know what you mean, weariness. I don't feel rested. Even when I'm resting, I don't feel restful. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if weariness does something to us. Thinking of this as a theological category, there's a kind of forgetfulness associated with it. We forget to take care of ourselves, perhaps. We forget to tend to others, the priorities that we care about in our lives. But maybe to your point, restfulness provides something about remembering well, caring well, having concern for those people and things and values in our lives that are deeply meaningful to us. Is is the cost of weariness fundamentally a lack of remembering, do you think, of some kind? Yeah, memory is a very interesting thing to reflect upon in the context of weariness. Um, First, I, I just wanted to respond to the wonderful point Mona made about, you know, physical exhaustion and mental exhaustion. And I would just sort of add to that, perhaps the most debilitating of the wearinesses is a kind of soul weariness, Mm. where weariness constrains your capacity to have hope and to do simple things like speak and understand who you are, you know, to to claim an identity. Mm. And the way memory plays into all of this is it's a very important category, but I also think there's ways in which forgetting is the body and the mind's way of managing being overwhelmed. And sometimes it's all right if we forget. Mm that we need to get out of this idea that somehow being able to reconstruct a precise anatomy of weariness or any existential state or any event that we've been through somehow gives us more precise purchase upon it. And sometimes it's the actual forgetting of it that is a structure of its healing. So the obsessive task of trying to literally remember the trauma that undergirds the weariness can itself be exhausting. And I think in this culture, sometimes we need to give ourselves a permission to forget in a healthy way. And forgetting is different than repressing. It's not saying willfully, you know, I'm just not going to think about bad things because they make me sad, um, or I'm not going to deal with this social injustice because it makes me feel uncomfortable and I don't have enough energy for that. But it's rather saying that as I begin to rest, How do I let my whole being rest, including my memory, including my constant struggle to make meaning and rest in the sort of moments of meaninglessness that are very real to us all and can't simply be willed away? I think that point about meaninglessness is really important because this contradiction that's going on, I'm thinking out loud here, that we want to find rest, we want to find some peace, but that disappears when we find ourselves without a place in the world. So, so much of our life is a struggle for what is our place in the world. There's a restlessness attached to that, but there's also meaning attached to that. And I think that strive for meaning, place, purpose can give us both hope, but also, as I think Serene is saying, is what tires us. You know, I think if you are lucky in the world, you 
go through your whole life with that inner peace, with that inner rest, that you are content with what you have. And I don't just mean materially, I mean in every sense of the word. And you can live your life, truly. But I think that the majority of us are not like that. We may not be as attuned to that as, you know, we are in this conversation. But I think that sense of restlessness often leads to weariness because we don't have a solution to that because we can't find all the answers. Are we okay to the point that I think both of you are making about about rest in different ways? Are we okay, do you think, in society being in a time where we're not okay with rest, perhaps? Now, maybe we find, maybe we're skeptical about rest in a society that seems to prize a kind of tenacious, constant movement forward. I wonder aloud about that and if the two of you have responses to that. And, and the second, perhaps it's one of the reasons why we're so kind of bone tired, sometimes weary, because we don't, we're an environment that may not uh, value the nature of rest. And the second question, if you'll take this to some, as you see fit, really, if we're seeking rest, is it something we can achieve? Is it more of an art or a skill, let's say, something like monastic centeredness? Is it a lifelong effort of finding what restfulness does for our lives that helps us address weariness? How do you respond to these questions, both of you? Unless you want to jump in, Serene. I think most of us can't live the monastic life. You know, we we may find that we're so weary that we want rest from everyday life. But the monastic life for many is almost too extreme. It's a refuge of sorts, but we're also pulled by the distractions and busyness of the world. Mm. It's where most of us grow up. It's where most of us find meaning. And so I think that all these self-help books that have grown in the last 30, 40 years about restfulness and mindfulness and meaning and purpose, they're really about, I think, how do you find balance? How do you find that repose in your life, which allows you to work and be who you are with all the positivity of ambition and life and moving forward without so much of the weariness that comes from not having achieved your goals, life not having turned out the way you want, not shying away from the deeper and more difficult questions that come with just living, you know, whether it's family or work or whatever. So I suppose that concept of balance is probably really important to how we think about weariness in both a positive and a negative sense. It can drag us down, but it can also lift us. I couldn't agree with you more, the finding that balance. I am also, when I think about weariness, I think that it has been the state of human beings since the beginning, that when we look at the present day world, there are many ways in which we have fewer causes for weariness than our ancestors from a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, where our life was just one continued, overwhelming, traumatic reality. And because of that, we have, in one sense, lost touch with the ancient practices that were associated with rest. And just to use a sort of very simple example, we no longer have as a society 
permission to take naps. Mm. You know, I remember growing up every day until I started kindergarten, my mother would require us for two hours in the afternoon to lay down in bed. And then even if we couldn't fall asleep, we had to just be in bed. You find some cultures in the world where this is still important. But, you know, in the Western industrialized society, the idea of being a productive person and taking a nap every day in the middle of the day is just completely incongruous. I I use that just as an example of not going to the extreme of a monastic response to it, which is absolutely virtuous and amazing, but a sort of more practical discipline or habit of living that incorporates into the process of one's day the habits of rest. And we've lost that. We don't collectively honor that. I think that's really important, what you just said, that last sentence, the habits of rest, because a rest is seen as something that is not part of the working day. And the fact that we're now discussing more people will be working from home or the hybrid issue, in actual fact, underlying that is this concept that if people want to rest a little bit as they're working, that's okay. You know, that flexibility that comes with home life. Yes, it may be manic for some, it may be chaotic, but it also allows you that space to just relax for a little bit without having to show that you're working all the time, which is not always very productive anyway. I think that sense of the habits of rest, as you put it, is not something that we cultivate and not something that we're ever asked or encouraged to cultivate because it's seen as a sign of weakness. Yes. I wonder if in terms of cultivating habits to this point, in a way that's addressing weariness, but thinking of the last year alone, we've had around the world, millions of people have perished from this pandemic. Thinking of the city where I live alone, there are communities that have sprung up amidst this turmoil. And I think a collective weariness associated with it in an effort to find maybe an artful or at least a creative release in the way you're talking about, which could include everything from learning a new skill, such as woodworking or rekindling a relationship or taking a nap. Or as we're seeing right now, you know, millions of people, 3 million people in the United States last month decided to leave their positions, their jobs, that there is something happening in terms of maybe a habit of the heart or redefining how one's going to address what feels like a pretty seismic disruption that's caused weariness. But maybe there's a connection between weariness and creativity as well. Do the two of you see a connection there? And if so, how do you describe it? I see there can be a connection there. I do think, though, that creativity usually requires something of an oomph. Mm. You know, so there's a there's a something of a of a drive towards it. And weariness at its most consuming is the oomph is just, you know, not there. But what creative things can come in the absence of an oomph is the regular, when your mind is tired and your soul is exhausted, the regular mechanisms you have for making meaning and organizing your world around you, making sense of what's happening, they begin to short circuit. And when they start short circuiting, uh, space opens up for possibilities and ways of seeing, doing, existing that were shut out by the chaotic noise 
of your regular structures of meaning making and of doing and of doing in the world. And so I do think that at its best, even if exhaustion and weariness just kind of creates um, a hole in your mind, in your soul, that hole can be the space of enormous possibility. It's interesting how routine that is also seen as a a boring word, you know, where, where creatures are routine. When it suddenly went out of the window over the last 15 months, how much we missed it, how much we missed what shapes our lives, even if we grumble about it. And I think the people that I know, going back to your point about people who have left their jobs, the ones I know left very good jobs because when routine went out of the window, when they were no longer certain that life could continue because so many of us felt we're suspended. We're suspended mm. between the old and the new. And we're still waiting for the future to start almost. They went on to something far more creative. Or if they didn't go on to something creative, at least in their eyes, they said, I'm looking for new purpose. In the sense that if it hadn't been for me being wearied by the last year and a half, I may have never realized that there is more to life that I can do even if it demands taking a leap of faith. And I think I find myself somewhere there that, you know, there comes a point where you may have reached the end of a certain creative period and you want to do something new. But I would say definitely COVID-19, the last 14, 15 months has accelerated that because it suddenly made you realize that although we all know life is short, life can suddenly seem very short mm -hmm. uh, when time almost contracts because there's so much to think about and there's very little resource or sense of how do you want to achieve new things. So I, th I think that for a lot of people, even if you just look at the data, many people have gone on to do what they always wanted to do, but couldn't because of demands of everyday life and work and routine. Yeah, I also, in, in such a good point, you know, and to talking about people who have left you know, good jobs and gone on to do something else that they've always wanted to do. It's a process that sometimes first requires a letting go, that exhaustion and weariness can thrust upon you. You let it go because you can no longer contain it. And it's not until that space is cleared out that what remains surfaces. But I also just want to add to this discussion something that we all know far too well that we're also dealing with the exhaustion of people who are not voluntarily letting go of things that have mattered or jobs or communities or ways of meaning making but have ha actually had them taken from them and I think that's in that context the question of how does one understand agency when it's your agency in the world, the very thing that could drive creativity is the thing that has been ripped away from you. Could you say more to that as well in terms of agency? Because so much of this discourse is precipitated upon the idea that, I mean, the false idea that everyone has equal agency. Of course, we know that's not the case. And you're pointing to this. If my agency is restricted, weariness feels differently, creativity feels differently, but I think you have something specific in mind as well as you're speaking, Sri. Could you just say more to this point? 
Well, I think in New York City, where I am, somewhere between 500,000 and 600,000 people have lost their jobs. And either, even more, are either been evicted or in the process of being evicted or have lost their homes as a result of the pandemic and the economy. And these are, you could call them letting goes, but these aren't voluntary letting goes. These are contexts within which the things that you needed in order to even take a nap, like a roof over your head or, you know, a job that allows you to have a day off has been taken from you because of the sort of gross social consequences of the catastrophic events that we've been through. And how one thinks about creativity in that context is very different when your options are so dramatically limited. And I think at a mass level, that is one of the most difficult realities our our country, our world is facing right now. And sort of and the response to that loss of agency can include a spiritual discipline. That's why religious communities are so very important, particularly to vulnerable communities, um, because sometimes the only place in which you can find agency is the agency that you have to pray, the agency you have to be with others, and the agency you have to care for someone else. But it may not be the agency you have to buy paints to paint a picture, or the agency of finding a new job, or the agency of moving to another city. Mm-hmm. So it just sort of modulates how we think about what the realm of that creative possibility is. And I think just to add to that, Serene, this agency to do other things that are not necessarily job or career related, there's a solace to that as well that is very seldom talked about in society. Yes. And I think a lot of people have also talked about that in recent months, that they've spent time with people, they've done things for others, they've been thankful for so many other things, precisely because it's given them time to just show gratitude for what they have rather than what they've lost. And I'm not minimizing loss in any way. The loss of income, the loss of a job is huge. But I think there are also people who found solace in different ways of being. Yes, absolutely. And the more collectively we can recognize that, and in fact, uh, learn from that, the deeper our understanding of weariness will be. That is a scrappy weariness. (laughs) That's a scrappy road to creativity when you've literally lost everything. The scrappy, you said the scrappy road to weariness or the scrappy road to creativity. through the scrappy road to creativity when that's the kind of weariness you're carrying. Yeah. And to this point also, Mona, you're making about, as I heard, a, a sense of solace where on that scrappy road, a lot of people feel where there's disruption, where there's lack of agency. In our own lives, we can see that. But, you know, I think of the, the young man I saw yesterday outside of a convenience store. I was coming out. It was late at night. He was shelterless. And his sense of agency, I reflected on, you know, I was thinking about it later. Like I had the privilege of reflecting on it later. So driving my car away and thinking of the fact that his level of weariness, as I was preparing for our conversation and my level of weariness, these are two, these are two different things. I don't know what his is, but I, I can only guess it's much, it's distinctly unique from my own. And his sense, Mona, to your point, his sense of solace and mind, these are these are so distinct from one another. And I wonder if creativity in a society that's feeling weariness across disruption like this and the kind of disequilibrium 
like that, also provides a creative possibility for a moral response. Reaching across where you see weariness so unevenly distributed in society. Well, two things, Michael. First of all, I remember last March, April, when this really, when everything started to be shut down, that all the homeless people disappeared from the streets because the government put them up in hotels or bed and breakfasts because hotels weren't occupied. And suddenly people started saying, you know, when the government can find the resources, it does. There isn't a single homeless person on the streets in the UK. And then over the months, of course, as various schemes were coming to an end, government money and protection was coming to an end, you Again, when I go to this train station, I see homeless people. They are back on the streets. People's situations and people's sense of what they need, what solace they require changes. And it's not always about material needs. And I I am not ever going to compare somebody who doesn't have food and shelter to somebody who does. But I think that we're all on some spectrum of what we want from life, uh, what we need from each other. My concern also is that am I in danger of becoming bored with weariness almost? You know, has weariness tired me out that I just want to switch off from death and sadness and what's happening to so many people's lives? Because over the last few months, am I becoming gradually desensitized? People have become numbers. Every day we get data about who's in hospital, who's died. And I think that that's a moral failing on my part that I'm even thinking like that. That is there a danger that we become desensitized to all this? That everything disappears under the umbrella of COVID and impacts our very humanity? Yes, and that's so beautifully said. And I think one of the things about weariness is weariness itself desensitizes you because you just don't have, when you're utterly exhausted, the capacity to take in information and process it and come up with solutions. Um, Or even, you know, when you're utterly exhausted, it's very hard to take in the pain of another person or the suffering or the the loss of another, when your own compassion mechanisms are themselves exhausted. You know, there's this term that's used in the trauma literature for particularly people who are frontline caregivers or essential workers, and it's called compassion fatigue. And it is about that sort of state of desensitization and sort of blankness and a moral blankness that sets in when your innate desire and your innate ability for compassion is itself been you know sort of exploded or the nerve endings that are there for compassion have been burnt out and so i do think that there's a strong relationship between recognizing the moral imperative of the moment, which I think this year has ripped off any covering that people of privilege have tried to put over the social injustices and inequities that structure our world. It's just all there and raw for us to see. But it's very difficult to respond with a 
a sense of a moral imperative for change if your compassion has been just, you know, shot. Mm -hmm. And that's why rest becomes a necessary precondition for moral reflection and moral action. In light of what you're both saying, and the phrase in front of me now is, is weariness fatigue and the need for rest for moral action. But I wonder if there are indicators now in society that the listener could be mindful of, of weariness fatigue, even if we identified a few. I mean, two that come to mind. One is binge watching as a, pheno- as a public phenomenon for those who are in a kind of privileged space to be able to watch you know, Netflix or other videos, a series, one after the next, kind of inducing almost amnesia. You, know, you just don't have to spend a lot of time resting. I wouldn't call that a form of rest, kind of really some ways forgetting the context one's, one's in. And the other one is perhaps just comes to mind at the moment is this public conversation around this, about returning to some form of normalcy, whatever that might mean, which seems to me to come from a pretty exhausted space. Like if we could just get back to the normal or a semblance of the new normal, those seem to me to be indicators of that kind of weariness fatigue. I just wonder if the two of you could reflect on that or if there's something else that the listener needs to be mindful of about how we forget to rest in this way. I Just very briefly, though, yesterday there was a statistic out, the kind of rise of binge watching Netflix, etc., has actually dropped now. Interesting. People have returned to more in-time watching because they're tired of binge watching. And I think that everything's novelty wears off. And I do feel that it's not that we don't require rest. I completely agree, Ms. Serene, on the importance of rest. Actually, for a more fulfilled life, I think most of us don't know how to rest. We'd, mm. And worse still, I think most of us don't want to rest. So we want to be seen to be busy. We want to be seen to be doing things. And it amazes me. I kind of joked a few months ago that with COVID, I'm going to even fewer meetings now because meetings are just so tedious most of the time. They don't don't achieve anything. When you really get something done, you just knock on somebody's door or you have a quiet word with them and that's it. It takes five minutes. But so many of my colleagues are in on every meeting. And I thought, what am I missing? I'm actually not missing anything. But I think there is this sense that we want to belong. We want to be seen to be part of ongoing work environment. We want to be seen to be productive. And this is how we will pass our day. And I think that sounds really tedious, but I think the truth is a lot of people miss that normality. Mm. Mona, I have to say, just a full confession here, I also um, <laughs> follow that statistic and I'm not binge-watching as much as I was at the start, but that's also because I binge-watched everything there was to binge-watch. <laughs> I ran out of shows. <laughs> you didn't go to enough meetings, Serene. That's why you had to binge-watch. <laughs> well, good. In terms of, let me ask you this then. If for the listener, if you had to say, all right, we're experiencing weariness in society, given what we said, by the nature of rest, how we understand exhaustion and this even an aspect of the human condition and all the kinds of the aspects that we've discussed so far. If you were to say, here's a couple practical ways for addressing weariness, in addition to what we've already noted, if you were to say these two things, I commend to you because I think it's important um, that we're mindful of how we can practically respond to weariness in our lives and the lives of others, our colleagues, our friends, and the community around us. Could you both just take a moment to respond to that question? It's a great question. 
I think it's the question that that we're on the cusp of having to figure out. I was um, I was writing a note to my faculty colleagues today about the end of the year and just made the comment that from a theological perspective, it's going to take us years to process and to think and imagine what has happened. Mm. And I have to say that I don't think there's answers to that question, but I think that the kind of habits and the realizations that are to come are coming. They're slowly emerging, but we're still so close to it that it's very hard to see a simple way forward. And I think whatever begins to emerge for us, it will be quite simple, not complex, but it it calls for a new way of being mm-hmm. and of, of being present. That's not strenuous in the sense of fatiguing, exhausting, making you weary, but strenuous in the sense of opening and of allowing you to be in the moment and be present. And just to follow on from that, Serene, I think that it's interesting, isn't it, that the effects of long COVID itself are that people are feeling tired, mm-hmm. that tiredness yeah. doesn't go away. And some mm-hmm. people have said they've had this now for months. It's almost that we've had this thing come into our lives demanding that we put a break on things. And if you're not willing to do it, well, I'll make you do it. Mm-hmm. Because the consequences of not putting a break on things are fatal almost in many cases. As I've said in so many other conversations, if we don't take health and global health seriously, and I don't necessarily mean in, you know, big WHO conferences and audits and data collection, but just in terms of how do we distribute better health, we're in danger of facing this again. And for me, I think that's the starkest warning that's come out of this, that even if we come through this, who's to say that another one isn't that far away, another virus or another pandemic that could have even worse crippling effects? Yes, you're right. And I feel even more weary just pondering that as a truth statement. Um, Yes. Well, thank you both for this time, for an opportunity to just have a very specific conversation about weariness and for the uh, time and energy you've given to do that. I've found it illuminating and I'm hoping that it's edifying also to a lot of people who are listening. And so very, very, very grateful to both of you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Mona. Thank you both. You're both brilliant. It's wonderful. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.